Welcome to Mentioned in Dispatches, a podcast from the Western Front Association, with me, Dr Tom Thorpe. The WFA is the UK's largest Great War History Society. We are dedicated to furthering understanding of the Great War and have around 60 branches worldwide. For more information, visit our website at westernfrontassociation.com. It is episode 326, and on today's Dispatches podcast, I talk to Dr. Dominic Denduven about his recent book, The British West India's Regiment, Race and Colour on the Western Front, published by Pen and Sword. Dominic spoke to me at the Cork Great War Conference in October 2023. Apologies for any sound interference, it was rather noisy when we were sitting outside trying to record this interview. So Dominic, welcome to the podcast. I wonder whether you could start by telling us about yourself, where you work and what you do. Yeah, I'm Dominic Dundolfen and actually my job is I'm a researcher and curator at the Flanders Fields Museum in Ypres, Belgium. I have been doing this for the last 25 years. I hold a PhD in history um, and made my PhD on the presence of Indians and Chinese on the Western Front. Um, and actually my main research team has uh, has been for the last 20 years the presence of non-European troops on the Western Front. We're here in Cork for the Cork Great Wall Conference. It's October, though this probably won't be going out in October. Yeah. But we're going to talk about your book on the West India Regiment. No, on the British West Indies Regiment. Now, I didn't know there were two. Now, tell me about... So what's the difference between the West Indies Regiment and the West well, India Regiment? Yeah, the West India Regiment was an existing um, regiment kind of defence force uh, professional soldiers and basically Jamaica or only Jamaica while the British West Indies Regiment is very different it's a unit that only existed during the First World War um, that, that uh, which was um, where people from all over the West Indies the Caribbean um, and two mainland colonies uh, being Guyana and, and British Honduras uh, were recruited and more importantly it was a regiment that well, that only consisted of volunteers um, black volunteers and the regiment was also an emanation of the wish of a particular class of black West Indians to serve king and country um, and these that class of black West Indians were Usually not the lower classes. These were people who had generally had an education. They were journalists, they were teachers, um, they were lawyers. Um, some of them were studying in England and, and they really wanted to join. But British Army regulations said, um, um, if you have a different skin color, you can't join. So they were refused entry in the army and then they petitioned King George V and it's through King George's med- medita- mediation that finally the British West Indies Regiment came about. But these were highly scholarly people. They were trained as soldiers, as infantry soldiers. It was an infantry regiment. But when they arrived in Europe on the Western Front, they were told, well, put your rifles aside, here is a shovel, and from now on we will consider you native labour which was generally considered an insult to this man. And the only battalion who really fought was one battalion uh, who found himself in the Middle East 
but those on the Western Front, it was just not done. I mean, according to, uh, for the British Army, it was not done that black people would fight white people, even if they were the foe. Uh, the only exception on the Western Front in the British Army would, would have been the Indians in the first year of the war, but otherwise, no uh, non-white uh, subjects of His Majesty uh, were ever allowed to fight on the Western Front. So, I wonder whether we could go back. So, how many battalions were within the regiment? Yeah, in total, 12 battalions were raised. The first four were uh, designed um, infantry battalions. Um, from then on, reserve and service uh, battalions. In total, 15,000 men, uh, two-thirds from Jamaica. Um, the other third broadly from all British territories in um, the West Indies and from the 15,000 who served in the British West Indies Regiment about 10,000 um, served on the Western Front so two-thirds of them would have served in, in France and Flanders. And so what does your book cover? Yeah, my book mainly focuses on their engagement on the Western Front, but also what this um, engagement, this residence in Europe meant for them, for the soldiers and for the politics at home. Because what we see is that through the racism they encountered um, in Europe, within the British Army, um, many of these people got politicised. And it's very interesting to look at some of these individuals uh, who later become, after the war, uh, become very active politically, either in a nationalist way, island nationalism, or in a broader um, African nationalist way. And, and, and they become part of the, um, the um, African-American... Well, many of them settled in Harlem, for instance, and would become active over there. So it's very interesting to see... My main question it was, first of all, my, my, the, the main things I wanted to do with this book is, first of all, giving recognition to these people, because so far only two books have been published on them. Um, one was a PhD uh, by a, a West Indian fellow, and the other one was another PhD which really focused on only the Jamaican uh, involvement. So there wasn't a general a book for the general public on them so giving recognition to them was the first thing and secondly my main question was uh, what did the um, what did the war experience do to them what did it mean to these people from the Caribbean uh, to be involved in what was utterly the white man's war in Europe and what sort of documentary evidence is there? Did they leave memoirs? Did they keep diaries? Well, that's a huge problem. There are some, but you can't compare it to the wealth of documentation sources uh, we have over here. Um, there were letters sent to the newspapers. So that's one source. Uh, the Daily Gleaner, which is the national newspaper in Jamaica, and, and, and the other uh, newspapers in the whole area. Uh, that was one source. Then um, there were some memoirs published, very few of them. There were two chaplains who published memoirs, a very interesting one, however. Um, I came across, unfortunately not directly on the Bahamas, because I've never been to the Bahamas, uh, was by Etienne Dupuche, um, a man who uh, you will find in the Guinness Book of Records because he's the longest-serving uh, newspaper editor ever. 
and the Puch published his memoirs in the 1980s and that has two chapters extremely informative on his service on the Western Front. Um, apart from that, there is also, in 1999, um, a British production company, uh, Sweet Patuti, had the brilliant idea of making a documentary on um, the mutiny that the British West Indies Regiment units staged in Toronto, in Italy, in 1918-1919 and for this they had interviewed a number of veterans who were then still alive. I mean they were, I think the youngest was 98 and the average age was 101 but still um, we do have these recordings and um, they allowed me to use um, these fragments as well. Um, so there are some but, but as with all these subaltern groups like Indians or Chinese laborers, what you actually have to do is every available possible source, including alternative sources, um, have to be brought together and, and you have to, it's scratching the surface basically and reading between, reading between the lines and so on. Um, yeah, it's not that straightforward as, as looking into the memoirs of a British soldier or officer or a Belgian uh, civilian so that makes it more more exciting as well I think. And so when do, when do the units start arriving on the Western Front and obviously there seemed to be a bit of reluctance from the British authorities mm. to raise these units but then given the fact that there was a massive labour shortage and the, and the British Empire employed um, Indian labourers, Chinese labourers, Egyptian labourers, yeah. how were they treated later on in the war? Yeah, it, it remains quite badly and it was bad from the beginning. Um, the first battalions would arrive in England had to wait a bit no. it's always always a challenge of live live broadcast <laughs> so so yeah. um so the first units arrived in uh, on the english south coast in late 1915 um that was in seaford which is uh, halfway between brighton and eastman um and that's when they already had the first riots um there was maybe should for a while um, and there you, you had a first riot um, where there was some kind of a, a minor mutiny um, because they they weren't paid and so they said no pay, no work <laughs> and they went on strike um, and then very short after the f they were first sent to the Middle East um, but very short after the first units arrived on the Western Front uh, 1916 onwards but then mainly, especially Ypres and France is 1917, 1917 to early 1918. And do they serve as uh, in a combat role or are they mainly um, used for labour? On the Western Front they were solely used for labour um, and that was seen as a, as a major slur um, because they would be named or designated even in official papers as native labour. And they weren't native, nor labour. Um, they weren't native because these these were pride um, British. They, they, they felt British. I mean, they, they they were settlers, just like the white settlers in the Caribbean. Only their ancestors had been brought over as as enslaved people, but 
they were settlers. They were not natives. Not, they, they were not like the Maori or native Canadians or the Indians. So um, they felt British. That was their identity. And they were in labor because they had joined as infantry. They had been trained as infantry. And then the general treatment was, um, was sometimes beyond words. I mean, um, in one of the memoirs of, of uh, a white chaplain who served with them, uh, the chaplain complains and says, OK, we are housed in these barracks um, and we're in the attic and it's leaking and there's no straw to sleep on, there's no mattresses and we're actually much far worse housed than the German prisoners of war who were on the, on the lower floors um, and where they do have bedding and so on. So you see that it was... The general treatment was uh, it was actually what made them politicise towards the end of the war. And you, we've talked about the Toronto mutiny in December 18, mm. but were there any other incidents of disorder? There were some, there were some. Um, we know that there was some writing, so now and then, to a minor level, because in general they did fairly, um, a fairly important job. I mean, one, one of the things they did was bringing... Uh, ammunition to the front and particularly during the third battle of Ypres in very dangerous circumstances and many were killed but on the other hand you also see how um, the attitude of the higher commands was to a certain level I would say suspicious um, I just give one example um, Herbert Morris is a 17 year old Jamaican who was shot at dawn in September 17 because he couldn't stand the noise. He was 17. So even if the courts martial who condemned him wasn't aware of his age, it's also clear that they didn't ask about his age. Um, and, and he's the only West Indian who's actually um, executed for a non-criminal uh, act uh, for yeah, he ran away basically uh, because he couldn't stand the noise and, and uh, so you've got these tiny elements like Herbert Morris case um, but also another example just just outside the British West Indies region but very much connected to it on the same cemetery as Herbert Morris which is uh, Popering New Military Cemetery um, one row before Herbert Morris you have the grave of Roy Manley. Now, Roy Manley is the brother of Norman Manley, who would later become Prime Minister of Jamaica. And Roy and Norman Manley served together. They were both studying in England when war broke out, and they wanted to join the army. Um, they did so, despite being from quite upper class, they did so in uh, labour class Deptford, South London, uh, because they say that we would be more easily accepted. Norman was made a corporal, but after a while he asked himself to be reverted to the rank of private because his fellow um, NCOs and the privates wouldn't accept a darkie, as they would call him, to give orders, even if he was only one-eighth black. So he was only slightly colored, but still that made that made the difference. Um, so you see, there's this... Racism, racism issue which was very much part of, of society at that time but if you look into the British West Indies Regiment and other West Indians who served you actually see 
what I did with the soldiers on a social and political level. And so, what about their leaders? What, did they have white officers, or did they have officers drawn from their own own colleagues? Yeah. Um, that as well. You had NCOs until the rank of sergeants, who were black, but all officers were white, um, which was also a common thing in in, uh, in in the British Army and even in the Indian Army, where um, Indians could be were officered to a certain level, uh, but not higher than that so that was a very common uh, a very common thing to do there are not that much complaints about their officers it's it's more the general attitude within and the general atmosphere within um, the British Army and of course one thing that you also have to take into account is that these West Indians who as I said were educated at the same time they would see the French using their tirailleurs Senegalais so their black African and North African troops used as fighting forces. So they would say, oh, you've got these, these guys, they come from desert areas, uh, they're from West Africa, uh, most of them are illiterate, and they are allowed to fight, mm. and, 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 and we aren't. So you see that, that, that contrast was very important to them. And how did, how did the local population in France react to them? Yeah, that's a big question mark. Uh, because we have hardly any accounts of um, local people um, and, and the West Indians. We do have some West Indian accounts, though, of how they got along with the local population. Um, like, uh, again, in, in the Bahamian, um, Etienne Dupuis uh, remembers how he befriended uh, a local girl, was allowed in the house of the family, uh, was welcomed. Um, around the stove and was served foods and so on which again might have been a contrast with the way they were treated within the army um, there was also a concern within um, the British Army command of this kind of fraternization between their black troops and the locals um, and I came across a loose leaflet in the um, diary of the assistant provost marshal in Poppering, uh, where it is written, yeah, um, only two of the cafes in town are open to West Indian troops, uh, them being the only ones where there is no female personnel. So you see that there was this concern for um, especially black troops meeting local white girls because it's interesting because i think some of the american uh, african african-american soldiers who come over actually report a very positive attitude often that they they find completely different from their experience in the continental united states yeah, yeah, yeah absolutely that's absolutely right and there are many comparisons between african-americans and the african-american experience and the west indian experience in the first world war however i also want to make this remark that it is not they felt it as though there was no racism in French society um, which actually there was only it was more benign um, and it would have been more a paternalist um, a more paternalist attitude but it's absolutely true that it's contrasted with the way they were treated at home especially in the US but also to a certain uh, extent in the plantocracies that the British West Indies 
uh, still were at that at that stage. And what was the impact of, of military service? Because certainly, when you know a lot of African Americans return back to America, and they, you know they see this as, as, as a as a as a symbol of their citizenship, they contribute mm. to society, they fought for their country, and how does the, the war impact on? Yeah. So having served gives you a certain status, and many of these people, many of these returning veterans, um, even if they were not really willing to become. They were actually forced to become leaders of their society. Many examples of that, uh, even from as soon as they returned. Um, when they returned home, and, and we've had the mutiny in Toronto, and so um, there was a high concern within um, the colonial governments that oh, we have these rioters coming back, and they have served now, so they have enhanced status, and they know that they were ready to give their life uh, for king and country and, and for the British Empire. So they are entitled to certain demands, so we have to be very careful. Um, and indeed, there were quite some riots all over the West Indies in the summer of 1919 when they were demobbed. Um, there were no victory parades for them. Um, quite often, they, as soon as they were shipped off, they were brought to the barracks. But on some stages, and I, just one example... British Honduras, which is today Belize. In British Honduras, there were huge riots in um, in, in the capital of Belize city. And um, the local police force was completely impotent. And what happened is that you saw the returning veterans um, taking over the role of the police, protecting the white men's properties and so on and really staging themselves as the new well the new power even if it was just for a short uh, if it was just just for a short while another example of this enhanced status is um, um, sergeant grant who was a quite a famous Jamaican agitator um, and and African nationalist so so forth of he was actually pro-Garveyites, as they call them, uh, pro-African uh, homelands. Um, throughout his life, during every demonstration, every protest that he mounted, he always wore his war medals. It's the war medals that made him. It's the war medals that gave him the entitlement to stand up and to talk out. Um, and... How do we commemorate and remember the West India Regiment on the Western Front, especially, I suppose, in Ypres? What, what is there today that we can go and visit? There's very little, but things are changing. The main thing is that um, you have the uh, graves, the headstones of many places, and I think quintessentially um, uh, popping anew with the, the graves of Herbert Morris and... and uh, Roy Manley is is uh, is very important in that, um, but there are many other cemeteries where you would have them. Um, but things are changing, luckily. Um, and just just last week, um, which is as we are speaking now, the last uh, the first of October, the last post association held a special evocation on Lisantuk Cemetery, which was dedicated to the British West Indies regiments and were four ambassadors to Belgium of West Indian countries, Caribbean countries were present. Um, Jamaica, Bahamas, Belize 
and Trinidad and Tobago were there, which is a first. It's a premiere. So I'm, I'm, it, it's something that really makes me very happy because it's another forgotten group that will be included in commemoration henceforth. And demonstrating that the First World War indeed is a world war and so many people took part. Yeah, and I think it's, it's even more important now that three weeks ago UNESCO designated also Listen to Cemetery, among many others, as, uh, and, and other war memorials and cemeteries as UNESCO World Heritage. And I've always said, even if in the end it wasn't designated World Heritage, it is World Heritage. I mean, we know that around EPA, people from 125 actual countries died. So I think there's no other place where this has occurred. So it is World Heritage. And finally, where can people get your book from, Dominic? Yeah, it was published by Pan and Salt. Um, so it's uh, either on, on the publisher's website, which is best well known to many uh, Western Front Association members, or through Amazon and the usual, uh, uh, the usual online or real stores. Dominic, thank you very much for your time. You're welcome. You have been listening to the Mentioned in Dispatches podcast from the Western Front Association with me, Tom Thorpe. Thank you for all my guests for appearing on this edition. The theme music for this podcast was George Butterworth's The Banks of Green Willow. It was performed by the BBC National Orchestra of Wales, conducted by Chris Rusman and produced by Biz Records. This recording is part of a collection of orchestral works by Butterworth performed by the BBC National Orchestra of Wales and supported by the Western Front Association. This is available from all good record stores under the record code BIS2195. Until next time.